Hi everyone, it's Joachim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I'm talking with Salla Niemela, who is responsible for employee experience at Futureplay, a mobile game studio in Helsinki. With Salla, we talk about how game studios approach the employee and employer relationship throughout the full life cycle of the employment, from hiring to working and developing the relationship, and finally to an exit. But before we go to this episode, here's a few words from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Pollen VC. At Pollen VC, we're committed to helping game developers improve their financial literacy. That's why we've launched CFO Resources, a new section of our website that hosts a free suite of calculators and financial planning tools to help you plan your business and grow faster. Our financial forecaster tool helps you project cash flows and visualize your ROAS and LTV based on metrics you provide. And if you're a hyper-casual developer, you need to check our hyper-casual velocity calculator. Head over to pollen.vc and click CFO Resources to get started. Are you a mobile game developer who's looking to try something new on the ad creative side? My top pick would be influencer generated content, IGC, by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific content from your games and Opera Event will deliver you high quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Go to getigc.com to see some examples. That's getigc.com All the developers out there that are looking for an easy game server auto-scaling solution should definitely check out GameEye. Choosing GameEye means choosing your players as GameEye is a platform independent solution. Game sessions are spread out over multiple providers to ensure redundancy and to achieve the best possible coverage in every region of the world. GameEye is your one-stop shop for all your server orchestration needs. They have many integrations already in place ready to go. You also can connect to your favorite matchmaker, anti-cheat solution or network optimization tool to their orchestrator and start running game sessions. They provide the APIs for this. Take advantage of automated capacity management and always have resources to run game sessions. Scale when you need it in locations close to your players. Check out gameye.com, that's gameye.com to see what they're up to and to connect with them. Hi, Salla. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This is great. First time I'm going to be talking to somebody who's doing this uh, people ops HR work. I was having a discussion with Yami, your CEO, two years ago uh, on this podcast. And he then said that he's actually getting somebody on board to help him on all of the, the people related things. I think he was talking about your position back then, most likely. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I heard the podcast and and I felt so nervous when he mentioned that. I was like, oh my god, all the pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now now we're back talking about future play and what has happened. But let's start by talking about your career in your field of HR and the story of how you got into the game industry by joining Future Play. Yeah, sure. Well, I graduated from the University of Basel in 2004. And a year after that, I started in, in HR. And it was a small sales organization. But I felt right away that this is my thing, like people work is my thing. And I wanted to learn more. So I moved to this law firm where I learned what it actually meant to work really diligently. And, and that was my HR university in a way. So it gave me all the basics for my future career. And then during my time there, I was there almost five years. There I got more interested in recruitment and I wanted to learn more about what it is. So I went to I, this recruitment consultancy, which was then my recruitment university, where I learned kind of what it means to be a professional recruiter. So I had really, really good experiences early on in my career. And then after that, it's been more about gathering or learning new competencies very systematically and the skills that I need in people work and learning about new industries as well. So I've been working on global recruitment practices, doing executive search, working in a high growth environment, working abroad, and then finally getting chances to build ATA and people function in the IT sector first and then now in the game industry. So that's where I'm now. And I got into gaming when Yummy actually sent me a message on LinkedIn early 2019, so a bit more than two years ago. We have mutual friends, but we didn't know each other. And then one of those uh, friends had recommended him to contact me. So thank you, Frida. So he contacted me and then it started from there. And I have to say that this has been the best experience in my professional career so far. So really good yeah, stuff. Like just a quick like follow up there to your your sort of like foray into gaming like when you were taking the future play job did you ask around about like what is the game industry like did you already have a some kind of picture in mind yes i did i had some friends in the industry so i asked around for sure because i wasn't sure if it was for me i'm not a big gamer as such and i felt that the id it sector was something that I felt good about and I felt like home there. So I wasn't sure if I wanted to change that. So I asked around, but then the Finnish game industry is so special and I heard so many good things about it and the, the people working there, like in the HR, the HR people and, and recruiters are such a close-knit team that support each other. Mm -hmm. So that felt yeah. really good to hear. So that's why I then decided that, okay, so there are enough things that would just encourage me to take the step. Yeah, let's come back to kind of like that, your sort of like realization about the industry in the discussion here. So like I wanted to split this up into two parts. I'm first focusing more on like the hiring and then sort of like talking about the, the life cycle of an employee in a game studio. And finally, it's kind of like the exit of an employee from a company. But can you talk about like a term that comes up often is talent acquisition and what are the basics of talent acquisition and how does future play do talent acquisition yeah of course so in my opinion talent acquisition it's a way to get to the company's vision 
and fill expectations of the players in the game industry. So it's one of the most important processes in a company. And of course, there are a lot of ways to build ATA strategies. So for a startup, it's really important to hire the best of the best, usually seniors in the beginning, the ones who are needed to start things up and, and carry their responsibility and do their part of the teamwork and, and who are willing to put in the work to make something awesome. And, and maybe even people who haven't been in that kind of situation, like starting a company before or being the first couple of people in the in the company, but who are really enthusiastic and share the vision of what should be done. And it's on the shoulders of these people, whether there will be funding or a studio in the future. So it's a really important decision to make. And then maybe at the later stages of a, of a company, it really depends on the skills and abilities and traits needed to build the product. So it can be done in many ways. But I think the talent acquisition strategy, it should always be based on the product and company strategy and then be mm. revisited regularly. So it's important to keep these aligned so that you're able to attract relevant talent on time. And then, you know, just being more mature and strategic with hiring. But of course, <laughs> I don't. I think that in a startup, it may not always be so systematic in the beginning. And then the hires are made when the need arises. And I think it's a strategy too. So it's one way to go as well. I think talent acquisition, it's so important to a company that in any case, it's worth using some time to figure a couple of things out before jumping to sourcing or posting job ads. So there are a lot of thinking to be done before that. So, for example, like why do we need to hire or could we, for example, outsource or reorganize work or teams? Or are there any examples of how innovative or other companies have solved this kind of a talent problem? Or could we use, for example, design thinking to come up with some solution of our own? Or what happens if we don't do anything? I think that's a relevant question as well uh, before yes. making the hiring decision. And then thinking about the role. So what's the purpose of the role? How will it support the product or company vision and direction, the responsibilities and expectations set for the role? Then short and long-term goals, I think it's really important to, of course, think about beforehand, but then also communicate to the, to the candidates. And do we know what the higher kind of, what makes it a success? I mean, do we have any KPIs for, for this role? And then in terms of personality, I think it's, it's really important to figure out if we need somebody who's self-managed or a facilitator type of a person or a responsibility carrying person or just get shit done kind of a person and then of course the skills yeah. are are important as well so mm -hmm. those kinds of things i would i would definitely pay attention to and in the early stages of a company hiring can be really straightforward and process free and that's totally fine but when there's more pressure for growth I think it makes sense to build some processes and decide who does what and what tools are needed, for example, recruitment system for GDPR compliance and, and all of that, so that people's time and resources are used wisely. Our practices at Future Play have evolved over time. So in the beginning, it was everybody participating and being a part of making the decision. And now we have these more defined hiring teams so we don't hire a lot, at least yet. So we've had time to test what works and develop our practices in the past two years in specific. And also the, the hiring teams, 
now here they, they decide separately what their process looks like. So depending on the team, it could be that the code hiring team, they have a bit different practice than the design hiring team. And that's totally fine. So now we have discipline specific hiring teams so for code and art and design. And when we open a position, it's actually them who do all the hard work and, and make the decisions. So they screen, they reject, they book interviews, they design assignments, they interview, they make the final decision. And then my job is more to look at the big picture and support them with everything so that we can offer a great candidate experience. So internal trainings for interviewing, for example, or how to use the recruitment system, supporting with creating the role description or job ads and, and publishing the ads. I also interview for from the HRs. Uh, perspective and give my recommendation and then I give the job offer and and then arrange the onboarding so that's the way we do it right now and I think we've done some things right since our candidate experience rating is now 4.9 on scale one to five so I'm pretty happy about this of course having said that not all candidates replied to the survey but it gives a direction of how they feel and I'm really happy about that Maybe in the future, I'm hoping that we would go more into having a designated TA team to save game, team, game teams time for their actual work. And then they would contribute by interviewing the best candidates and, and making the decisions. But we're not there yet, but, but we're kind of halfway there and, and doing what works for us now. That's really interesting. Like when you are approaching hire, how, how do you set sort of like expectations from the employer's perspective. Uh, like how high is the performance bar that like that you're going after? Like uh, there's the Supercell CEO Ilka says that the new hire should increase the, the level of performance of the company. Like whenever you bring somebody on board, how can you set expectations so that when people join, those things aren't sort of like totally in a different place where they expected it to be. Well, I agree, of course, with Ilka. When, when hiring, we should always aim at making the company better, hire by hire. That's a that's a no-brainer. And I think communications, like open communications, gets us a long way. But I also think that we should remember that it's not so easily defined what is better if you think about it. So It doesn't necessarily mean that it's always more senior or more experienced colleagues as such that make the whole thing better. For example, sometimes a more junior team member comes and asks such questions that give a different perspective, which improves the whole product. Or sometimes new people outside the industry bring new thinking in. Or sometimes it's someone with less experience with something but an amazing ability to facilitate group discussions and get the team, say, engaged and ideate and, and fly in a totally new way. Or then something like, a, which is a really important factor as well, that if there's somebody who is able to learn new skills and maybe even teach them forward in the team is really important. So what is better, what makes the team better can be also something else than just hiring really senior, uh, for example, developers or designers. And I think it tells a lot about the company's maturity. Like, do they hire very, very experienced development team members and nothing else just because? 
or do they then look at the big picture to see what else is needed in the team and the company? I think it was interesting to read about Google's internal study on successful team teams. It was years back, but they found that the, what was it? I think it was psychological safety and dependability and something about structure and clarity that mattered most when they were building teams. So it wasn't necessarily the core skills that were needed. Of course, that's that's one part, but not the most important thing, but it was about the people and team skills that mattered a lot as well. So you asked about setting expecta- expectations. I would always go for open communication. I think that does the trick. And we've actually had some discussions regarding this internally at FuturePlay when people have seen years back when we had job ads where we were looking for rock stars or unicorns into our positions. and The people said that it made them feel uncomfortable because Mm -hmm. they feel that they are just normal people who know Mm -hmm. their job and they're doing something they love. So they were thinking that, would I be able to get hired here? Am I a rock star? It doesn't feel like us or it doesn't feel like me. So why do we communicate something like that? So setting those kinds of expectations already in the recruitment phase. I don't think it's realistic and we don't, of course, do that anymore. But it is so much about communication. And in a way, I also think that performance, it has a lot to do with the support the employees get from the employer. So in my opinion, it's totally unfair uh, towards the new employee to expect them to thrive even as super seniors if they don't know what is expected of them and why and what their role is and what are the rules in a way in the company and values of the work community. So when I've been thinking about hiring or building a company and and what kinds of people are needed and, and all that expectation stuff, I would always want to build it on self-determination theory in a way mm-hmm. because it covers the basic needs for a person's motivation and well-being and, and psychological needs. And then when these are covered, people thrive and the business thrives. Well, it is a bigger entity that we're talking about. It's not only about communication or setting expectations, but I think everything comes together in a way in this self-determination theory. And that's one thing that we have also utilized when building our uh, employee journey, for example. Can you give an example of how the self-determination theory actually, how do you apply it in a situation? Yeah. So, for example, well, it comes from three different things. So there's autonomy, which means that you're in control of your life and, and maybe making your own decisions also at work. And then competence is about being able to do something, to do your work. And then relatedness, like having sense of belonging. And those are the things that we have been able to put as a part of our employee journey. So that since the well, we have divided our employee journey into several sections and it starts from recruitment. There's uh, pre-boarding and onboarding and then life and work happens and, and then the exit uh, or the offboarding part. And we try to include all of these elements into the different phases of our employee journey. 
so that people would feel, for example, when they join the company, that they have been hired for a reason. They are appreciated. Their competence is appreciated and, and they know what they're supposed to be doing. But they also have a say on on maybe what kind of a role they will take in the team, etc. And then when they have, for example, met several people as a part of recruitment process, they also have this maybe a sense of belonging or, or they can relate to their new colleagues when they join. And that takes a long way um, in the employee journey. So those kinds of things that, that we try to look at things from the employees or the candidate's perspective and then utilizing these three things has been a, a really kind of eye-opening and a good way to, to build our journey. Yeah, myself used self-determination theory for making games, and I've recently bumped into is the self-determination theory coming up more and more in game studios in the how people are operating in teams and in the studio. So it's very interesting. It is. I didn't even know that, and that's yeah, that's really good to hear. And I think these matter because I think it is a gold mine in a way for employers it if is. they understand how powerful it is to utilize these mm-hmm. in the workplace because they create engagement and well-being and satisfaction. So it's all the good things. And it's not very difficult to use them if you think about it. Mm-hmm. It's very a humane way to do things. And then it, it, it gives to the business at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Let's go back a bit into the, to the hiring process. Like, user play has this flat hierarchy, as Yami tells in the episode. And if it hasn't changed in two years, mm-hmm. I, I believe Hello. it's still quite flat. So, who is running these hiring processes? Is, is there a lead? Is there somebody who's sort of like who's responsible? How how's that set up? Well, in short, we have the discipline hiring teams, but maybe the push comes from our game teams. So when they realize that they would need more hands, more skills, more something, we talk about it in the company weekly general meeting. And then basically that's how it goes. So then I support, but then it's it's always the, the game teams who give the first push. And then the discipline hiring teams, we usually have three or four, let me think, yeah, three or four people in the hiring team so they are running the show at the moment and then I support and we don't have any team leads or or anything even in recruitment that somebody would be leading it maybe some structure is needed as we grow but this is how we do it now let's see where we are in a year for example who knows yeah interesting let's move on to talking about the life cycle of this employee once the hire has completed and and the person is joining, it's their first day. What do you think is critical in the onboarding phase for new hires? Yeah, that's a good question. I think traditionally it's been becoming productive as soon as possible. And I think that's an awful way to put it, although I understand it. But yeah. I think it's more. it should be more about learning to know the work community as soon as possible, because that's where everything starts. And learning about the culture and people and values and ways of working, meeting people and, and teams, and are talking about our strategy and, and past and the future. I think, of course, these should also come in the recruitment process, 
but then talking about them again and maybe adding more content in the onboarding is really important. But in addition to these, I think this was really interesting because this week we had our newest employee, his one month trial period discussion, and he mentioned that the onboarding was really good, but he would actually like to get to work even sooner. Now we usually have the first week for onboarding sessions and meeting all the teams and disciplines, etc. And then the actual work starts a bit slower towards the end of first week or the next week. And this was the feedback that he would like to get to work. And I think that was really important for us to hear as well, because that's why they are here. Mm, (laughs) And that's what people want to do and they expect and and they enjoy that they are here for a reason. And that reason is is to get to work and, and do what they're supposed to do. So that's, of course, one thing that should be included pretty early on in the onboarding because I think it's onboarding as well that when you start working and you have this buddy and close colleague system so then there are people who will onboard you for your actual work so yeah it's an important process for sure definitely yeah in a sense like when a person comes in into a game studio they they want to start building games (laughs) pretty quickly yeah it's a passion-oriented job so yeah, I can imagine that that is important. Then talking about like going from there to working in the studio, can you talk about performance reviews and what is the approach at Future Play now and how is it evolving? I think in performance reviews, feedback is relevant and from that it becomes from relevant people is really crucial. And this also comes up in our internal surveys. We measure a lot of what we do in HR here at Future Play. And our people say that it is the closest colleagues who should be heard when we talk about performance reviews or compensation reviews. And that's what we have been trying to include in our process this year in specific. But I think the relevant feedback from from relevant people is important. And then having fair and transparent practices and criteria for assessing the performance and compensation. Those are really, really, I think, the basics. And it shouldn't be a gut feel that I hear a lot about. Like, yeah, we know, we know, we don't work with them on a daily basis, but we know. And I think that's that underestimates the work that people do if there are no criteria or no transparent practices. So it should be a fair process where everyone knows how it goes and when things happen. And like in everything, I think everything starts from internal communication and everyone knowing what is expected of them and setting those kinds of expectations is really crucial. And I think in an ideal world, people would get feedback for their work on a daily or weekly basis just along as they work they yeah. would get feedback from their closest colleagues so that they know how they're doing and and how to improve and and also where to go if they need support and this is something that in the past 2 years we have had a lot of focus on the the feedback giving like what are our mechanisms where do we get and and give feedback along the employee journey and then Mm -hmm. and how do we gather that information and we have taken huge steps so now we have now we have a long list of ways of giving feedback some of them are just surveys that we conduct like 
after recruitment or after onboarding, things like this, or our quarterly well-being survey, things like this. And then we have our, we just had our first this kind of a team feedback week, which we are planning on having maybe twice a year where everybody gives their closest colleagues feedback. We have this uh, feedback tool called TeamSpective that we use. And then, of course, we have retros and exit discussions and, and all of those. So those are a part of our feedback giving tools. So I think performance reviews, of course, that's one thing. If it happens once a year, there's a lot of pressure that comes to that one discussion or or, or round. But if it's continuous feedback that you get along as you work, then I think that's on a maybe a more stable way to do it. Yeah, there's, I'm a sort of like a big fan or this is a big interest area for me is giving this kind of like direct feedback to your peers. Like there's Google has this radical candor. Uh, there's like talk about healthy conflict, peer-to-peer accountability. Like, do you like think about these systems that you were just talking about, like systems in place to have feedback? How could you measure if things are improving, things are going into a direction where people feel that it's okay, you know, share even something that might might not sound, you know, delightful at first, but but that people are sort of like coming from the heart. Hey, we want, you know, you to actually improve yourself. And it's not yeah. about blaming or whatnot. Yeah, that is tough. And and actually last year we had a theme year that focused on communications and, and these team skills. And we had a partner who then, well, we had lectures and, and workshops about nonviolent communication and, and giving feedback and, and what different models there are and how, how to find your way of doing it. Because it's also so personal thing that if you feel comfortable with, you know, sending feedback through some tool, then that's fine, but you're not comfortable with saying face-to-face, then I think we should have the tool because I think it's mm. more important to give and receive feedback than maybe train people to talk face-to-face if it's totally uncomfortable for them. So I think finding mm. a good way for everybody that suits their needs and, and a way of doing things is really important. But yeah, there, there's been trainings and, and exercises last year and now we have gathered this very good sets of different ways of doing it and and we are measuring it in our well-being survey which happens every every quarter and then we have a specific question like how does it go that i get regular feedback for my work or something like that and that has been really low unfortunately yeah. and that was why we wanted to focus on that and that started already two years ago but it has now been getting better and and last time when we had it for q1 we actually hit our target and that was a huge celebration for me yeah. and and our team because it was like the first time that we hit our target with that so so i think we are taking really good good steps forward but it's a slow process because it takes time to get used to it and and being also comfortable with receiving feedback yourself because there can be some redirecting feedback coming your way as well. And it's not easy to read something that you should improve in, for example. 
so it goes yeah. both ways. Moving on to sort of like the the end of the life cycle of an employee, which is the the exit phase. So this is an area that I've been reading a lot about because like, you know, there's a lot of ways that the person will be leaving the company at one stage. So there's this, there was this kind of concept that uh, people would be in jobs for several tens of years, uh, 40 year, like gold watch, whatever. Then there's the, I love this concept of tour of duty from uh, LinkedIn's founder, Reid Hoffman, in his book, The Alliance, where he talks about this kind of 10 year as something that like is familiar from academia, where you have sort of like a pact between the employer and the employee, where they both sort of like share a relationship where there's sort of set expectations, what the employee gets, what the employer gets. And after the tour of duty, which might be two or three years, there's a, a new checkup on do we continue the tour, uh, what's going on. So have you, how are you sort of like thinking about this, this area of employment evolving as a concept? I think somehow Hoffman's idea is in a way a breath of fresh air because it's a mutual agreement or a pact and, and no one has to guess. So I think it in a way must benefit both sides. So why not? I think it was interesting to to read about it. But then also I'm thinking that maybe the changing idea of an employment is a generation generational thing. I don't know. It maybe it's becoming more and more common and accept, accepted to have shorter employments in general. And I've seen the switch also. And I feel that it is today that people don't spend 20 or 30 or 40 years at one employer, but maybe they gather experiences and, and gather some skills at one place and then they move on to another. And that is more accepted nowadays. And I think in general, people are thinking more about what they will get or learn from an employer. And then they go and get it. And when they have gotten it, then they are ready to learn something new. And if it's not that employer who can offer that, then they move on. Or then they won't even take the employment, but they work as independent consultants. Of course, that's been coming a lot as well in the previous year. So so I think that's an interesting aspect. And I've actually talked about this topic with my own coach because I don't have very long employments in general, but I have decided to gather the skills that I have wanted in different companies and environments. And I've thought like, does it look bad if I do that? And and that was also the question when, uh, before I joined Future Play, that one of the founders, he wanted to talk about this, like, okay, so how do you feel about this and and what would make you stay, etc. So I think it, it is a valid topic to talk about mm-hmm. openly. But nowadays there's also the public side, which is the social media, which makes it a bit more difficult maybe for kind of bad employers to to hide because bad employment experiences are made public and also people leave uh, bad employers easier than before so then it's if the case is that a person for example leaves for for some bad experiences the the kind of the effect on employer brand it follows the company for a long time so that's something new that's that's come 
of course, it's it's been a while since the social media came, but but it is something that has to be paid attention to. So mm. I think this is something that kind of brings us to the most important thing for a company. So if you can't offer what the employees need, they will leave. And if you don't take care of their well-being or feeling of security or development possibilities, good leadership, etc., they know they will get it elsewhere and they will leave because there are many companies who offer that. So kind of in in my opinion, the, the question is how to make people want to stay on their own terms, but then in a way that will benefit also the company. And maybe then it is the Hoffman's idea that yeah. makes most sense. And know. then it comes back to, yeah, I think it comes back to the self-determination theory as well. Hmm. Like yeah. these are the areas, you know, you get camaraderie, you get the relatedness aspect, you get competence from the skill development, the autonomy is sort of like you develop your sort of like own compass, this attitude and abilities uh, to, to sort of like do, do risky things and things like that. So it, it is interesting. Yeah, it is. It all comes together. Everything is yeah. linked. It is. Uh, <laughs> another book that like, I was recently reading, this No Rules Rules, uh, which is from Reid Hoffman, Erin Meyer, who wrote Ultramap. So they did this book together about Netflix's culture. It just came out last year. And there's a concept there called high talent density, sort of like this you know, you, you have a lot of people who are there because the people who are there are so great. So you are, you're sort of like pushing people to excel the most that they can. And then the peers also feel that they, they get so much benefit from this high talent density that it's very attractive as a place to be working. But like, what do you think are other ways to achieve high talent density? Versus like laying off the poor performers uh, or or the bottom performers. What do you think? I think employer has a huge responsibility also in this. So and it goes to the setting the expectations in a way as well. Like, do people know what is expected of them and what is the direction of the company and, and is it communicated regularly so that people know what to focus on and, and where we're going? I think. Things like this and the, the company's strategy and, and getting feedback, all of these are the basics that should be in place in any case. But I think this is also about the company culture. So if you want quick solutions, I think firing and hiring new ones is a one way to go, but a very short-sighted way to go. It can be effective, but for how long? I think if you want a kind of want to build a more sustainable company that has talent, it comes through, I would say, well-being and engagement and supportive environment. So I would opt for finding the most efficient ways to develop individuals, like maybe giving responsibility or maybe a bit too big shoes to fill and yeah. using the 70-20-10 model maybe ensuring counters for employees or using time on building teams that work well together or mentoring to get to the high talent density. And I think this is, at least nowadays, it is so much about the ability to learn also. So it's not about offering 
some development or training programs, but about maybe getting people to understand and learn to learn. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, spark, yeah. spark the interest sort of like in, in topics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the Finnish philosopher Karolina Jarenko has talked a lot about learning and she talks about learning development instead of competence development. And she has suggested that instead of the original 70-20-10 model, the 70 should be for co-creation instead of just basic work, but focusing on co-creation, so working together. And then the 20 would be for self-reflection and then 10 for trainings. And I think it's an mm. interesting aspect for development and, and learning. But I have to say that I understand the Netflix's point of view and, and this idea, but I'm just questioning that is it a good environment for even high yeah. performance in the long run if they know yeah. that they may be let go basically anytime if something happens. I mean, even in their private life, if they're not performing well enough or, or cannot contribute enough due to something happening in their private life, is it yeah. directly that, okay, you're let go because you're not contributing like you, you should be? I don't know, but I would rather build a supportive and welcoming workplace that, of course, sets clear expectations for doing things and, and learning and sharing, etc. But that has this humane perspective. Yeah, I, I think like one thing to always consider is if somebody's poor performer, but they are very much aligned, very intrinsically aligned with the company values. Like, could you find ways to actually like create this learning environment for them to, you know, excel? And then if they're already so well aligned with the values, then that's sort of like half of the battle. If if there is this kind of like moment that you definitely need to fire somebody, if if it's just that they just don't fit into the company and they're they're sort of like not a good fit in any ways. Like in Finland, of course, we have this possibility to give big severance packages because you cannot really like actually fire people. But what is your mind like? What do you think about the game industry in general? Like, what is the best way? Or somebody to approach firing. Yeah, I don't think there's an easy way to do this or an easy answer to this. At least the things that come to my mind is that bringing the performance or behavior issues up immediately with the person as they arise. I think it's really, really important because then you can, if it's something that comes up, you go and talk about it. It happens immediately. The person hopefully understands that, ah, okay, so I did this once and it's not accepted. So possibly I will not do it again. So then it will be corrected that easily and it won't happen again. But then I think it it goes to what you said just previously, that offering support for learning and, and developing skills and, and just listening and having good leadership or somebody available for you, for you. I think these usually help the most and can even prevent the situation to go as far as ending the employment. So just going and talking with the person and saying what is okay and what is not okay, those usually work like maybe 90% of, of the times. But then I yeah. think open discussion is is always the way to go. There can be so many reasons for low performance or or bad attitude or bad behavior. 
that I would never make a decision without discussing it openly with that person to actually know what's going on. And then just the decision that the, that the person is or will be leaving, then just making it as smooth as possible for practicalities and, and helping the person with everything and, and making sure that they don't lose their face because mm-hmm. this is about respect as well. So yeah. having a good exit is a thing and it should be a thing. Yeah, that is good. Good point. Before we go to the final questions, I wanted to ask if you have any advice for startup founders on how to improve their hiring and a possible like firing process. I would say for hiring, build a company and not a product. It may be harder that way, but it takes you further. Mm. And then ending an employment. I think if you see that things won't change, don't wait. Because poor performance and unmotivated employees, they do so much bad for the product and the team and the company and, and your community that it's better to just talk about it and, and make a decision. It's not fair for for the colleagues. It's not fair for the person. It's not fair for anybody to keep people who are not motivated and, and not performing if others are. So then make the decision fast. Yeah, that's really good. Really good advice. All right, Paula, final questions for you. Tell me what is your favorite book and why? Well, I I had to think about this. Uh, I really enjoyed Ben McIntyre's The Spy and the Trader. It was really, really good because it was based on true story. And I love historical novels. And, and I have this weird interest and love for Russia. because Maybe because my dad lived there for years and I, I visited Moscow and, and all of that. But that was a really good spy story. And it was just good. And if we go more to maybe professional literature, then philosopher Frank Martela's book, Light Nears is really good. It has helped a lot when I've built our employee journey at Future Play, for example, because it talks a lot about inner motivation and, and finding good and meaningful life. So there's been a lot of inspiration there coming from my work. It's interesting. I haven't read either of those, so check mm-hmm. them out. Yeah. Uh, do you have a story that has shaped you in how you approach your work today? It's been a growth story for sure for myself (laughs) maybe from being this very idealistic and and black and white and and perfectionist type of a person for a long time at work towards becoming more accepting and understanding and, and maybe even mature in so many ways just in the past years and I think what got me there was the understanding that I got I think it was through agile HR and, and Rina Hellström's work and, and the discussions with her, um, because I understood that it's not about me or what means I would use to hit the targets at work, but finding a way to engage and co-create with the employees. And that's the kind of the point of Agile HR in general. And and kind of it, it always gives a better feeling to everybody and the business results 
in the end when you do it together. So I think that was a game changer for me because I always had a, a really clear idea of where we are going and what the company strategy is and, and how I will support it through my work in HR or in recruitment. But then I didn't think about that much of the ways and how to get people's buy-in. But then mm-hmm. when I realized that I need to do it with the people and get their buy-in as early as possible, that was a big learning experience for me and, and made me maybe a, a better people person as well. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that that's really good advice for anybody who's building stuff in teams. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, last question. What is the best way for people to, to get in contact with you if, if they want to know something like about like how you work on people on HR? LinkedIn. That's the best. Please don't call me ever on phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. LinkedIn is the new cold calling place. So go yeah. There. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sala, this was really good. Thanks so much for coming on the show and uh, I hope you have a, a pleasant day. Thanks so much. This was really exciting and fun. Thanks. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again, Salla, for coming on the show. If you like our content, please do hit follow or subscribe to the podcast if you're listening to this on an app on your phone or something like that. Because then you'll get notified when next week's episode is available. And do check out our website at EliteGameDevelopers.com where I have a bunch of content that I've written in the last two years. And subscribe to our newsletter so that you'll get all the information that I'm processing about game startups and putting out every week. So go to EliteGameDevelopers.com to check that out. And I'll see you next week on the podcast. See ya. Bye-bye.